the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Whenever you think about it, uh, we use the word bless or blessed a lot uh, in everyday speech. We use it in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different uh, contexts. We probably don't recall the first time that we heard it because we were only a baby and somebody looked at us in all our cuteness and said, ah, bless his little cotton socks. And of course, if you sneeze, uh, you're very often greeted with the words, bless you. Uh, Well, well, what's that all about? Uh, Well, uh, no one's quite sure, but one popular theory is that Pope Gregory the Great encouraged people to pray, God bless you, after a sneeze to ward off the plague. Uh, Seemingly the word bless uh, is used today as street slang in parts of England. Boys in street gangs don't want to be seen as soft, uh, so when they're saying goodbye to each other rather than a a manly hug, uh, they say, bless up. Uh, So uh, that's kind of street, street slang. Of course, bless is often accompanied by the expression, oh, oh. So someone might say, I've just got ketchup on my new shirt. Oh, bless. You know, so. <laughs> in Northern Ireland, uh, it can be an expression of the fact that someone lacks self-awareness. So we might look at wee Joey on sports day. There he is all lined up at the starting line, facing the wrong way. Can't get his egg to stay on his spoon, and we say, Bless him. He still thinks he can win. <laughs> bless can be used in place of a swear word. I get into the car this morning, and the blessed thing wouldn't start. <laughs> but perhaps we, we encounter it most often today as with a hashtag blessed, uh, by which people simply mean they feel lucky to have something. Hashtag blessed. Health, love, fame, fortune, talent. And of course, we'll see it time after time, won't we, through the summer. Somebody sitting on a beach somewhere. Hashtag blessed. Well, over these uh, summer weeks, uh, we're going to be uh, looking together at the opening verses of the Sermon on on the Mount. Uh, This is a sermon preached by Jesus, which is perhaps the best-known sermon uh, in history. Uh, Where even if we're not familiar with the whole sermon... Bits of it have passed into uh, everyday usage. Oh, you're the, you're the salt of the earth. Oh, you've got to turn the other cheek. Uh, you have to love your enemies. Don't judge. Uh, we're all on that kind of broad road, isn't it? It's that broad road that leads to destruction. So lots of it's kind of familiar everyday uh, speech. But the sermon opens, uh, as we've read this morning, by, by focusing on this word blessed. Uh, there are eight statements that begin with the word Blessed. Uh, and most Bibles uh, subtitle this section, The Beatitudes. 
Uh, and I do have a very vivid memory of sitting uh, in church uh, as a teenager looking at this word and wondering how on earth you pronounced it, uh, let alone what did it mean, the beatitudes, the bow tides, you know, what, what was that all about? Uh, and it simply is based on, on the Latin word beatus, um, I'm sure you all know that, all you classical scholars, uh, meaning blessed. Uh, so in uh, everyday English, we might uh, have the subtitle here as the blessednesses, uh, uh, and that's what this refers to. So what does it mean to be blessed uh, according to Jesus' teaching? Well, that's something, as I say, we're going to explore uh, over the next uh, few, uh, few weeks. But first of all, uh, some brief uh, comments. And first of all, the, the Greek word blessed is actually very difficult uh, to, to translate. Uh, there's no direct English uh, equivalent. Uh, and so we're best to translate the particular word that's used blessed here. And again, uh, English makes it even more confusing because not every uh, word that's translated blessed is the same word in Greek. But the one that's being used here is something like, means something like, it will go well with those who. It will go well with those who. But it's not really a, a general statement of that or a general statement related to our well-being. For secondly, it has to do with the kingdom of God. If you look at verse 1, you will see that the crowd surrounded uh, Jesus. But these words you read are directed towards his disciples. The whole sermon is for those who are followers of Jesus and have embraced his kingdom. And thirdly, it will go well with those who have embraced the kingdom of heaven because the implication of each of these beatitudes is that it is God who will provide the blessing. The person who exhibits the attitudes expressed in the Beatitudes is the person who enjoys the favor, the approval of God. Fourthly, the promises of blessing in these Beatitudes are not promises of immediate health, wealth, and happiness. Rather, as will become clear as we work our way through uh, the Beatitudes, we must take the long view. So we might paraphrase what is said in the Beatitudes as, in the final analysis, it will go well with those who. So in the final analysis, it will go well with those who. And fifthly, you will notice that the first and the eighth statements both promise the reward of the kingdom of heaven. So it's a literary device that acts like a set of, of brackets. And in other words, everything that goes uh, within uh, these brackets uh, goes together. They all relate to the kingdom of heaven, and they all relate to us as individuals. So this is not a menu from which you, you choose, uh, in which you say, well, yes, I'm, I'm blessed. Uh, I'm blessed because I'm poor in spirit. Or, oh, I'm blessed because I hunger and thirst for righteousness. They all go together. They all go together. These are the values of the kingdom that we are to embrace uh, in its totality. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus highlights eight qualities then that all members of the kingdom have uh, in common. As one commentator notes, they don't generally describe actions, but rather people who are in a certain state. In other words, the Beatitudes have to do with the condition of our hearts. And in the first Beatitude that we read together this morning in verse 3, Jesus proclaims, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus telling us? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, perhaps the best way to explain uh, spiritual poverty 
is in the first instance to see it in action. Uh, And one of the most vivid demonstrations that we have of this is found in a parable that Jesus taught in Luke 18, 9 to 14. So if you have your your Bible uh, with you, uh, I would like to turn across uh, to Luke uh, 18, uh, 9 to 14. Uh, We'll read uh, that section uh, together. It's always good out of your Bible open, either physically or, or electronically. Uh, it's an aid to concentration, uh, it's an aid to memory, and it's an aid to seeing whether or not what I'm saying is actually based on, on the text. So look, 18, uh, 9 uh, through to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, first of all, notice the setting of the parable, verse 9. It was taught to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Here's a parable that's taught to those who, who, spiritually speaking, think that they have made it. Those who think that they are spiritually rich, who look down on others because they are not members of the spiritual elite. And of course, Jesus tells it, as we've seen, to challenge them. The parable Jesus offers two contrasting pictures of two very different men going to pray at the temple. He begins by focusing on the Pharisee, someone whom everyone would have expected to be in such a religious exercise. Jesus tells us how he stood up, he stood apart, and he prayed aloud. The temple was a very public environment, uh, and this was a very public prayer, meant to be heard not only by God, but by everyone listening. Now, probably everything this man says in his prayer is true. He begins by thanking God that he's not like other men. And you can almost hear him going through a mental tick list uh, in verse 11. As he prays, I'm not a robber. Tick. I'm not an evildoer. Tick. I'm not an adulterer. Tick. I'm not even like this tax collector. Tick. Here was a, a religious man. He did not practice all kinds of evil. His prayer is even based on Scripture. It's based on Psalm 26. And not only verse 12 tells us that he refrained from evil, he excelled in religious deeds. He fasted twice a week rather than the prescribed fast of once a year. Tick. He gave a tenth of all he had and not just the prescribed crops. Tick. If the religious life had been an Xbox game, here's a man who had unlocked all the achievements. This man excelled in his religious life. He knew that. And by the time he'd finished praying, so did everyone else. And there can be little doubt that the men addressed by Jesus, they would have been very impressed by this. 
They would have listened to Jesus' description of this man, murmuring their approval, nodding their, nodding their heads, and they would have said, one of us, one of us, one of the chosen few. And interestingly, Jesus, in describing his prayer, comments in verse 11, he prayed about himself. Now, if you look at your Bible and look at the footnote, you may see another way that this can be translated. He prayed to himself. He prayed to himself. In his prayer, he's, he's commending himself to God and others. He's telling God that he's kind of a big deal. As someone has put it, his prayer is so laden with self-congratulation it can scarcely get off the ground. In contrast, the tax collector is not someone you would normally have expected to find in the place of prayer. In the eyes of the Jews, he was a, a traitor. He was in collaboration with the Roman authorities. He was going around probably robbing everyone blind by imposing extortionate taxes. He was despised and he was hated by his fellow countrymen. Those to whom God told this parable would have been asking themselves, what's a man like that doing in the temple? As Jesus turned the focus of the story in this man, these men are prepared with an armory full of religious scorn. But again, notice the first thing that Jesus tells us about him in verse 13. Like the Pharisee, this man too stood apart. This man stood at a distance, but he did so for entirely different reasons from the Pharisee. I suppose he was trying to look as inconspicuous as possible. Not quite sure how people would react to finding him there. As I was reading through this again this week, I was reminded of a pastor from a Canadian city. He once told us because of where his, his church was situated in this big city, uh, that sometimes it, it would be visited by prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. Because these people made their living on a street, uh, when they came into the church, uh, their appearance meant there was no doubt. There was no doubt that they were not part of the regular congregation, part of the regular uh, church set. So what did they do? They sat at the back. They sat at the back. They knew they didn't fit in. They didn't know what kind of reception they could expect. But gradually, as they began to come more regularly, they found that they were welcome. They would move further and further up the church. That's a miss this man, isn't it? He doesn't know how he's going to be received. He doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't fit in. He fears that he will be rejected, and so he stands at a distance. When he prays, Jesus tells us in verse 13 that he cannot look up to heaven. That was the usual posture of the religious Jew, looking up to heaven. Instead, he stands with his head bowed in shame, his face hidden from God. He doesn't lift up his hands, which is the usual posture of prayer for Jewish people. Instead, he beats his breast continuously. In the culture of the day, that indicates shame and sorrow and grief. And as he comes to the place of prayer, he recognizes that it's not only before others he's an outcast, before God he's an outcast. What does he pray? His prayer is very simple and straightforward. Verse 13, God of mercy on me, a sinner, or more literally, God of mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. And he asks for mercy because he recognizes that in his condition he dare not ask for anything else. He asks for mercy. 
because he cannot command himself. In poverty of spirit, he can only ask God to have mercy. He can only ask God to give him what he does not deserve and what he cannot earn. Jesus, verse 14, comments in the parable, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. Now, to those whom Jesus is addressing, that's an absolutely shocking statement. How can this Pharisee, with all his righteous credentials, not go home justified? Everything he said about himself is true. How can he not go home justified? How can a tax collector, a collaborator, a swindler, a sinner, go home justified. Well, Jesus tells us, for all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says this is how it is in the kingdom of heaven. Only those who are poor in spirit only those who, who humble themselves, only those who cast themselves upon God's mercy, only they will be lifted up by God. So with this parable in mind, how then can we learn about poverty of spirit? Well, I want to suggest there are at least three lessons that we can learn here uh, this morning. The first of these is to say that poverty of spirit begins with spiritual realism. Poverty of spirit begins with spiritual realism. The word for poor that Jesus uses here means a person so poor that they are forced to beg in order to survive. A person who is physically poor lacks resources. They have nothing. They struggle to put together the very basics of life itself. And that's part of the fundamental definition of poverty, having no resources. And this is also true of the person who is poor in spirit. The person who is poor in spirit, they look into themselves, they look into their heart, and they see that spiritually, spiritually speaking, they have nothing. They have nothing with which to commend themselves to God. They look at themselves and they reach the same conclusion as the, as the tax collector. I am the sinner. I am the sinner. Paul writing to the Romans reaches that famous conclusion in Romans 3 and 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's God's verdict on each one of us here this morning. There are no exceptions. True poverty of spirit begins when we read the Bible, when we listen to God and accept His verdict on each one of us and say, I am the sinner. I am the sinner. The truth, however, is that many people find that verdict offensive. There's more of the Pharisee in each one of us than we would like to admit. Often we're like the, the Sunday school teacher who taught his class the story of the Pharisee and the, the publican, as it used to be known in the, the King James Bible, and concluded by saying, now that we've finished that story, let's pray together and thank God that we are not like the Pharisee. But I wonder this morning, as we've read through this story, how many of us have been secretly congratulating ourselves in this way, saying to ourselves in our hearts, at least I'm not like that jerk the Pharisee. 
Like the Pharisee, we often congratulate ourselves that we're not like other people. When we compare ourselves to others, we secretly think that we're better than them. We look down on them, their sins, well, their sins are they're gross and offensive, they're, they're, they're socially unacceptable. Our sins, well, they're a bit more respectable, aren't they? They really don't hurt anybody. We get to pray at the end of the day and confess our sins. We scratch our heads and think, well, I haven't really much to confess today. But of course, the reality is it's not the degree of our sin that separates us from God. It's the sin itself. The person who is poor in spirit doesn't look at anyone else and think, well, I'm not as bad as her. Instead, they acknowledge I'm at least as bad as her. Probably worse. Certainly worse than anybody here knows this morning. And I have no grounds to boast. I have no grounds to boast. When I was at uh, primary school, my headmaster conducted a reign of terror in the school. He wandered around the playground shouting at children, handing out random beatings with his cane to pupils who broke a host of seemingly unwritten, unknown rules to anybody. One day my turn came. I took a shortcut. I didn't come back from the playing fields at lunchtime by the designated route. Scandal. There I ran around the corner. I can see it yet running around the corner of the uh, classroom and there was old Baldy standing waiting for me. So we had the whole school lined up there in 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 the playground and he brought me up to the front and he began bawling me out in front of the assembled school. Now despite the fact that I was seven and was pretty hardcore, I broke and I began to blub through the tears, I managed to say to him, Peter Gamble did it too, sir. <laughs> Someone who had not been caught was as bad as me. And do you know what? He didn't care. He completely ignored Peter Gamble and he kept giving me a rocket. You see this morning, that is how it is standing before God. God doesn't care who else did what. He'll he'll deal with that in due course. He looks at you. He looks at me and he says, you need to face up to the fact that you have sinned. And you fall short of my glory. And poverty of spirit begins with that spiritual realism where we accept God's verdict upon each one of us. We need to acknowledge that I am the sinner. That's where we begin to exhibit poverty of spirit. And that is how God begins to deal with us. Jerome, who was one of the the early church fathers, wrote, Let a man grieve for his sin and then rejoice at his grief. Let a man grieve for his sin and then rejoice at his grief. See what he's saying? saying, how blessed is the person who knows that they are a sinner? Because God has revealed that to them. And that's where our journey with God begins, with that spiritual reality check of who we are in the eyes of God. Secondly, poverty of spirit acknowledges spiritual bankruptcy. 
Again, we might think in terms of physical poverty. A beggar doesn't go to bed at night hungry and say to herself, tomorrow I'll change this, tomorrow I'm, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get some money, I'm going to, going to buy some food. And she's powerless. She cannot change a thing. And it's the same with, with spiritual poverty. It's a recognition that we are spiritually bankrupt. Not only do we lack spiritual resources, but we can do nothing, nothing to alter that situation. Like the tax collector, we can only ask God for mercy because we have nothing to offer. To be poor in spirit is to realize that since we have no resources, we're in need of outside help. The person who is truly poor has no resources, no way to remedy their situation. And their only hope is that someone will come from the outside and intervene in their situation. My mother grew up in a good deal of poverty in the, in the 1940s. The only work her father and my grandfather could find was, to, was by going to work in, in Derry, uh, going from Balamina to Derry to, to work. And he lived there all week. Uh, and meantime, at home, the family survived as best they could. But as the weekend drew near, the food would begin to run out and there was no money to buy any more. My grandmother was often faint with hunger as she would go without so that the children could eat. And then at last, Friday night, six o'clock, the train would pull into the station. Grandfather would arrive home with wages, food could be bought. That's the nature of living in poverty. You're waiting for intervention. You're waiting for someone to bring you out of poverty because you cannot do it by yourself. And so it is with spiritual poverty. If we're truly spiritually bankrupt, then we accept that the only thing that can change us is outside intervention. We realize that unless God acts, unless God intervenes, unless God rescues us, unless God shows us mercy, we're in the poverty trap. We're in the spiritual poverty trap. If you read on in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 8 and 9, the chapters following the Sermon on the, on the Mount, you'll see repeatedly people crying out to Jesus for help. People who are in distress and powerless to, to change their situation. We see a leper, a centurion with a paralyzed servant, a paralyzed man, a father whose daughter has died, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and a blind man. All hopeless cases, but all cry out to Jesus to help them. These people are physically powerless. But these different people, they're, they're different types of physical distress, and it's something much deeper. It's when Jesus not only heals the paralytic, but forgives his sins. It's when Jesus drives out a demon and a mute man speaks. Jesus' physical restoration speaks to us of the greater need we have, the need that we have because we're in spiritual poverty and only He can deliver us from that. The person who is poor in spirit looks into their heart and says, I'm spiritually blind. I'm spiritually dead. I'm a spiritual leper. I'm spiritually paralyzed. And unless someone rescues me, I am lost forever. We have nothing. And unless God intervenes, we are lost. So we do the only thing we can. 
We ask God for the only thing we dare. We cry out to him for mercy. But thirdly, poverty of spirit gives rise to hope. Why does poverty of spirit give rise to hope? Because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who are poor in spirit will find God's favor and therefore gain entry into the kingdom of heaven. The person who is spiritually realistic and who accepts their spiritual bankruptcy is the person that God blesses with a royal inheritance. Here's the wonder and the the uniqueness of the gospel. What do all other religions and belief systems of the world teach us? They say, try harder. Try harder and you might find favor with God or whatever divine form is out there. Make greater sacrifices. Live a more austere life. Give more gifts. Live as pious a life as possible. Lay down your life if you can. And you just might find favor with God. But the heart of the gospel begins not with God saying you need to try harder if you're going to impress me. It begins with God saying to us, give up. Give up. He says, give up trying to find favor with me. Give up trying to impress me. Give up trying to earn your own salvation. Give up and acknowledge that there is nothing that you can do that will gain you entrance into my kingdom. Luke 17 and 10, Jesus says something incredibly striking to his disciples. He says, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Think about it. It says, even if you do everything that God commands you to do, you do not merit a reward. You've only done your duty. You've only done your duty. Those of you who have had any involvement with the armed forces or the police or the uh, rescue services will feel the force of this. You'll know that when you've finished doing your duty, your commanding officer isn't standing waiting for you. Isn't standing with with open arms, with a warm handshake and saying, that was absolutely fantastic. You did your duty. And because you did your duty, there's a whole special dinner arranged for you. Come with me to the, the officer's mess. That's not how it works. No one receives special commendation for doing their duty. No one's impressed if you do what you've been told to do. And Jesus tells us we cannot win favor with God simply by doing what he has told us to do. There's nothing that we can do that will impress God. There's nothing that we can do that will put God in our debt. Nothing we can do that will open up the gates of heaven for us. In fact, despite our best efforts, the reality is we have failed our duty. Each one of us. And we have done those things that would exclude us from the kingdom of heaven. However, the great message of the gospel is that through his son, the Lord Jesus, God himself has done everything for us to open up heaven. Through his son, God has made a way. He has done so by handing over his one and only son to the cross of Calvary. And there upon the cross, 
the one who enjoyed God's favor for all eternity. The one who led a life that led God to express, express his pleasure in him. There upon that cross, he became sin for us. He took our sin, his guilt, his power, his shame, his penalty. And by his death, he removed the sin barrier that exists between us and God. He unlocked the gates of heaven for each one of us. And what must we do? Well, we need to act with spiritual realism. We need to acknowledge God's verdict upon us. We must admit that we are spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing. Nothing we can do to help ourselves. Nothing we can bargain with God in order to earn His favor. Instead, in the words of the old hymn, we confess, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Jesus reminded the Pharisees we cannot lift ourselves up before God. Rather, when we humble ourselves before God, He will lift us up. He will lift us up. He will make us heirs of an eternal kingdom. Because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In the last analysis, it will go well with those who are poor in spirit. For God will say, yours is the kingdom of heaven. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning. Let's pray.